You're listening to Where We Are, and on this week's episode, you know, Where We Are is generally intended as a, a statement. It's where we are. Uh, but if it were a question, the answer today would be with you, the listeners. That's right. We have our third uh, listener Q&A episode today. We got some great questions from... Uh, so many of you, we're going to take as many as we can, cover a lot of ground. And uh, so, you know, just imagine there's a fire between us, some hot cocoa, and we're going to have a talk tonight. You're listening to Where We Are. You are listening to Where We Are. I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. Melissa, we have our first trip in probably like six months. Yes, uh, this six weekend. Months. Yes, that's correct. We're recording. We usually, I mean, just some uh, like housekeeping. First, I feel like I jumped into the episode really quick. Like yeah, I, I'm not like being your has, brain is I'm not being hospitable. Yeah. First, welcome. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. Okay, uh, so <laughs> usually we record on Saturday night. Uh-huh, yeah, that's right. Uh, but we have a flight tomorrow. Uh, yeah. So so we're recording on Friday night. Yep. We have a flight tomorrow. Yep. And uh, we, we, have a, we have a trip. We're going to see some friends. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the one and only Annie, Annie Downs. Downs. <laughs> uh, and so we're excited to see Annie. It'll be a That Sounds Fun network palooza and um and yeah so i'm excited about that and your mood has just gotten progressively better (laughs) as the week has advanced and tonight you're you're verging on giddy i i I sense i sense i had my final kidney stone procedure this week on thursday and i am free from this saga in my life and it is unbelievable how much better i feel that I don't have a stench just stabbing me every everything I, with everything I do. I just feel like a free woman. I will never take for granted my working kidney and the whole urinary tract system again. That's for sure. Yeah, so I'm feeling free. I'm a free bird. Any uh, any f- further explanation you want to give to the maybe like a uh, give them a diagram with your words of the saga. <laughs> Um, no. Do we need a special episode just focused? I need a laser pointer. On <laughs> yeah, laser pointer. <laughs> uh, hey, so before we jump in to questions, uh, I want to give some shout outs. Uh, mm-hmm. We talk quite a bit about refugee policy on this mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast. It's an important issue to me, important to Melissa. I think it's, uh, we think scripture and Christian tradition speak to these issues uh, in powerful ways. And uh, this week, the Biden administration, the U.S. government, announced the launch of a program called Welcome Corps. Welcome Corps is based on a pilot program State Department had been running um, that itself 
was modeled significantly on a program in Canada that we've had friends take part in. We have friends, Mark and Jackie Sawyer, who took part in the State Department pilot program. Uh, they were featured in Christianity Today uh, on, on Friday. We're so thankful for their example. But basically, uh, the program allows for individuals, a small group of individuals, to sponsor a refugee fleeing war persecution for resettlement in the states and uh, uh, basically if it opens basically it opens a, a new pathway for refugees to be resettled i think it has significant um so it has implications for refugee policy specifically and resettlement policy specifically and depending on how successful the program is it could lead to a pretty significant shift. I mean, for years and years, basically resettlement has been done by these by uh, a group of agencies mm -hmm. or nine agencies yep. uh, now that are uh, sort of authorized by the State Department for this work, and that's what resettlement has looked like. Um, it's kind of an interesting mix of progressive and conservative instincts. Uh, you know, there's like a subsidiarity thing going on mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. There's a like a localist yep. approach here, and so this could this could we'll see how successful it is. I hope it's very successful. It could be uh, could could really affect uh, resettlement refugee uh, policy in the states. But Melissa, here's the I think the implications are are even greater and go to the um, to the realm of sort of imagination and philosophy and um, like shifting our politics more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, one of the major disconnects in sort of the nat national culture wars around diversity and and immigration and refugee policy, one of the disconnects has been for as hot and and polarizing as these debates have been nationally um, when you go to local communities there are just incredible stories and, and incredible local government participation incredible civic organization participation and then just neighbors being neighbors of even communities even conser not even but conservative communities politically conservative communities when actually confronted with uh refugees in their midst tremendously welcoming <laughs> uh tremendously like healthy uh beautiful uh situations conservative churches that maybe wouldn't vote for the candidate that you would term to be pro-immigration or pro-refugee, those churches still have ministries serving refugees in their midst. And so there was always this sort of disconnect between how local communities and people in their actual sort of, in their day-to-day -day lived experience were thinking about serving 
welcoming refugees. And of course, there are cases where people have not been welcomed. You know, we, we could we could dig into that. But there's been a disconnect between how people, how many people have been operating on the ground and our national conversation. What a policy like this does is it actually connects federal policy mm-hmm. and yes. resettlement directly to these local neighborly impulses, which is not just good, I think, for resettlement. I think there are all kinds of just practical like policy benefits of, um, I think, a community of neighbors have the potential to be much better at resettling than big national organizations that do tremendous work and we mm-hmm. give to them. But I'm just, imagine... Uh, just on, on the practical level, uh, refugees being welcomed into communities with a, with a, with a small but significant uh, set of contacts and support system already in place. Incredible. But, but then also think about like connecting federal policy to these to the best of our impulses on the ground as opposed to national politics uh, incentivizing and feeding into the worst impulses uh, uh, in our local communities. So I think that could be a huge imagination shift, not just in how people think about refugees, but how people think about the federal government, how people think about their stake in sort of in, in sort of their local communities and then also in uh, our, our foreign policy and mm-hmm. uh, how America represents itself to the world. I mean, yeah. it's just tremendous. And then just the last thing I'd say is this is a tremendous opportunity for the church. So I haven't been able to dig through all the regulations yet. And so I, I just say this with the caveat that I haven't dug through all of the fine print uh, and so I can't sort of say this categorically at this point, but uh, in Canada and um, and my understanding of how the pilot program has functioned, basically, this is a tremendous opportunity for uh, uh, church small groups to decide they're going to put in resources and enter this program. This is an opportunity for churches to uh, actually spread information about how their congregants uh, can step up. Uh, What a wonderful thing it would be if the church, as it is in so many other ways, in confronting so many other social problems, but this is a new program Given what's happening in Afghanistan, around the world, there's a lot of attention right now on refugee crisis. What a wonderful thing it would be if the church was on the front lines of this. And it doesn't take big institutions to do it. It doesn't take uh, 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 millions of dollars being directed to one place. It takes a handful of neighbors with uh, uh, you know, uh, some some resources. So it takes some financial resources for individuals. You can fundraise to uh, it, to reduce the the personal burden. But but um, but uh, 
it doesn't take sort of a huge amount of institutional lifting. It takes small groups uh, within communities who are willing to be a support network to help refugees who need some support to be resettled in America. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful program. You could learn more. Uh, you could Google Welcome Core, uh, C-O-R-P-S, Welcome Core. Uh, think AmeriCorps, think Vista Corps. This is this is a, a new service program, Welcome Corps. Or you could go to welcome.us. Uh, and uh, we were able to be early supporters and actually helped welcome.us work with the faith community uh, uh, in the lead up to their launch. Uh, I mean, uh, Melissa, uh, we had talked to welcome.us leadership early on telling them what a wonderful thing it would be to uh, to be able to run mm -hmm. the uh, something approaching the Canadian model here. And so to see a year later uh, mm -hmm. that happening, it's just an incredible, just a really beautiful thing. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Yeah, so I wanted to share that before we got into questions. And uh, as always, feel free to let us know what you think. But but I'm I'm tremendously encouraged that this is that this is happening. Melissa, how about we get to the people? The people have asked questions, and we have answers for the third time. Yes, for the third time. Um, yes, you can look back on um, our for, uh, part one and part two in, in previous episodes to listen to uh, what other listeners asked and our, our answers there. But today, we're going to start off with the more serious questions, and then we'll move into the fun questions. Thank you again for sending both serious and fun questions. We like answering both. We don't like being serious all the time. Uh, Why are you looking at me? I don't appreciate that. You are a serious man. All right, just okay. get to the well, questions. Well, well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we give a rundown of any notable committee assignments uh, that we saw this week for the House? You know, I think the most notable thing here is McCarthy... Uh, ended up putting some real right lightning rods on the oversight committee and it it's so Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar from Arizona, Lauren Boebert from Colorado all on the oversight committee. Now there are two ways of looking at this uh, from sort of Democrats perspective or, or really just from an outsider perspective um, and Politico has some reporting on this one way to look at it is oh these are these are you know folks who are willing to say do just about anything who really 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 don't like Joe Biden or really any mm -hmm. other Democrat um, they they have a vote now on the oversight committee and and yep. they're going to stir up a lot of trouble and um politico reports that house democrats are are kind of cautious about mm -hmm. about about this that the oversight committee has all of these uh folks on it all these uh republicans on it who are known for raising a bunch of money off of sort of the controversies they stoke and all of that so there's some concern among house democrats Political, on the other hand, is reporting that uh, the Biden White House is thrilled. 
And, and the angle here is, if you're trying to present yourself as the opposition party, sort of the loyal opposition party, um, the alternative, the like serious alternative, right? The point of the oversight committee, uh, or I shouldn't say the point of the point of the oversight committee is to provide oversight, <laughs> you know, like the, 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 the political, um, how the oversight committee has been politicized and how really the opposition party, the, the political, the general political thrust of an opposition party in the house, especially running up to a presidential election is to provide, is to serve as kind of a shadow government to say, to, to make the, uh, the party in power look as bad as possible. Uh, and to present yourself as, uh, sort of a better governing option. You know, you can't trust them. You could trust us. Da, da, da. Um, if, if that's the model that, that McCarthy is hoping for as Speaker of this House, having these folks on the Oversight Committee is just not going to help with that. I mean, you're, you're going to have... Um, the. The, the real danger is that serious investigations are actually undermined, like, like investigations that, that need to take place, oversight that needs to be done, that that's, over, that that's undermined by the fact that tied up in this oversight are these Republicans that a majority of Americans just do not and will not trust, will not take seriously. You know, it's just a very different thing than... You know, whoever is chair of the oversight committee is going to be demonized. Yeah. But like uh, Trey Gowdy was like a, a, a serious member of Congress. Now, if you're a Democrat and you're listening and you're like, Trey Gowdy, he's not serious. He's a he's an attack dog. Nah, nah, nah. And it's like, well, yeah, well, that's what Democrats, that's what the party uh, in power will always <laughs> say about the head of the oversight committee. Um, but Trey Gowdy had a, you know, professional background. He had good, decent relationships across the aisle. Uh, and, you know, was a serious guy. I, you don't want Marjorie Taylor Greene on primetime TV, uh, you know, asking questions of, the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of Treasury or some Biden official, that, that that's just the, the risk there is too high. So so that's a key dynamic. All eyes will be on the Oversight Committee uh, during these uh, next two years. They always were going to yeah, be. The course. fact that there are so many, uh, that, that there are these sort of very polarizing uh polarizing Republicans on the committee mm -hmm. is going to only going to intensify intensify that MSNBC is going to have a field day <laughs> with the fact that it, and really that's my as, as a civic person you know a person who's interested in government working that to me is the dangerous thing mm -hmm. that yeah. you'll you'll have serious Republicans asking serious questions on this committee that need to be asked but what the news is going to be filled with for like understandable reasons. If you, if you, if you have, if you have folks 
screaming at the top of their lungs and lighting things on fire, the attention's going to go there as opposed to the person who's just going about their job. <laughs> um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I, I think that this has the potential to undermine the oversight sort of capacity and function of this committee uh, and of and of House Republicans generally. But the, yeah, that's an interesting dynamic, Melissa, that we'll we'll see play out. Yeah, that's right. Our next question is, are eggs ever going to be cheap again? And I took this one as to just being a broader inflation question, besides being a very yes. specific question out of, about a very specific commodity that has just skyrocketed. I mean, if you're a, a family that goes through a lot of eggs or, you know, the American diet has really put eggs front and center as a breakfast item, as an item for cheap protein, especially for children. Um, I mean, yeah, I think these, people know that Searsha is... A, a world premier, world premier champion egg cracker, um, but uh, she she's had fewer eggs to crack because because yeah. uh, we need to watch it. Yeah, because basically, <laughs> you know, the 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 egg problem in particular is a, is a, is a real supply chain problem with the avian flu, and so there's just a huge shortage, and when there's a huge shortage, prices go up. I mean, it's not just an inflation thing, and so. I really don't know when suppliers will be able to get a handle on um, their chicken populations again, but I'm going to assume that they will and they'll find a solution and this avian flu problem will become less of a problem. And so, yes, I do expect that eggs will be cheaper again, but one of the problems with inflation always, and one of the things that you'll rarely hear talked about when it comes to the economic decision making with with inflation and the political decision making with inflation is that um, politicians really don't do a very good job of let it, uh, helping people to know that when you do come to periods of high inflation, a lot of various commodities, especially ones that consumers consume a lot, um, so not just like cars or things like that, but like groceries, like those types of items, is that once prices go up, a lot of the time. Um, retailers, they usually won't keep the price at you know a sky high price. But even if inflation were to go back down to what the Fed hopes to be around two percent, what we're probably going to expect it to go around three percent before the the Fed finally relaxes. Even if we have an inflation rate of around three percent, we should expect a lot of the things that we buy today, whether it's a new kitchen table or a dozen eggs or um, you know hairspray, that the prices are going to be much more elevated than they were in 2020, 2019, because consumers have already started to get used to prices, even if, like, obviously the poorest of the poor are suffering the most from these prices. So many others are getting used to it that retailers are going to be keeping those prices high. This is this is not just the mark of, like, you know, 2022, 2023 inflation. I mean, this happens every time there's inflation like this. It's just what happens... Um, uh, for consumers, it's really too bad. Well, right, like it shouldn't well, be that well, way. Right, but. And just I know this is simplistic, uh, but right. I mean, p when we talk about you know inflation has peaked, that doesn't mean that there that there are category sort of wide reversals. What mm -hmm. it means is that instead of prices rising by nine, ten, eleven percent, that prices are rising by six seven percent yep um and so 
so yeah, I mean, so I, I don't, I, I do think in some of these categories, I do think like the price of eggs will go back down, but, um, but yeah, I think Melissa's ob- obviously, yes. obviously right. I, the other, and just to state, just a quick update on inflation, right, Melissa? I mean, the two basic facts are inflation has peaked, mm-hmm. yep. and then the second basic fact is. Inflation is still higher than what the Fed wants it the to Fed be wants at. It to be at like 2% you want it to be less. a two percent or less, mm-hmm. and it's like triple that now. It's still. six point five. Yeah, in- it's increasing every you know each month by six point five percent. It's and been so, decreasing yeah. for six months in a row, but we're still at six point five. And so you know we can expect the Fed to possibly raise interest rates again. Um, I mean, they might be trying to. They call it the Goldilocks. Um, uh, I don't know situation, whatever it's called, um, where they're hoping we're hoping that they probably don't raise rates again, but they're just going to take a look at all these commodities that that make that go into how we calculate inflation to see if things are responding. And then the labor market, because it's been so hot, the December jobs report, which I think added around something around like two hundred fifty thousand jobs, that actually is technically cooling, despite the fact that that's a very positive report. Um, for the unemployment rate, which is around 3.5%, one of the lowest in years. Um, We're seeing a lot of tech layoffs all of a sudden the last week. Um, There was a big Vox Media layoff today. So we're seeing various sectors. Uh, Apple is going to be laying Microsoft off. Microsoft laid out, Ma- Microsoft. laid off, I think, 10% of yeah, its employees. Yeah, and, and Apple is around the same percentage. Yeah. So... I'm not sure if we if that's really truly the beginning of the start of the you know we're gonna see a recession and then that will cool inflation most likely even more, or if they're gonna get the Goldilocks scenario and that they raise interest rates enough we're gonna get another great uh, you know inflation report next month and the cooling of the job market is gonna just stay cool and not get too cold, mm-hmm. yeah. It, you know, time will tell, but I, I do think eggs will get cheaper again because it is such a supply issue, a supply chain issue. It's just that if you are used to paying 79 cents for your dozen eggs at like Aldi, um, you know, in the future after this, you know, the supply side problem is over, you might be paying more like a dollar nineteen, a dollar twenty nine because of the lasting effects of inflation. Yeah. So our next question is, are Democrats stuck with Biden in 2024? Well, first, look, I'd be very, very careful about assuming that it's a matter of Democrats being stuck with him or Uh not. Yeah. Uh, And and, right, part of it is... um, Democrats may be, quote, unquote, stuck with Biden because of the awareness in the party that there isn't a clear, better option. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I, I know people have personal favorites, uh, but for looking at the electorate, yes, Biden has weaknesses. Um, I mean... Uh, as someone who worked on both the 2008 and 2012 campaign, the 2012 campaign uh, for Barack Obama was much more difficult. The margins, obviously not just in the results, but just the whole race, it just felt so much tighter and more constricted. 
the there were fewer possibilities in 2012 than in 2008. It'll be the same for Biden for many reasons, uh, including the fact that, you know, he'll have a record to run on, defend this time, and he's had to make decisions that have had costs and have made enemies and that kind of thing. But it's very difficult to uh, to sort of unseat or sort of get an incumbent president to not run for mm -hmm. re-election. That's right. Now, I won't belabor this because this is what we talked about last week. So if you're interested in sort of Biden's political stature, how he looks heading into a possible re-election campaign, listen to last week's episode because we, we spent 50 minutes unpacking that. Yes. Um, you know, I'll just say another week into news stories about classified documents. Mm -hmm. I do think, again, as we said last week, he was... It looked like at the start of January, he was riding high that he was going to potentially announce a re-election campaign with a clear, uh, 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 with an approval rating that was clearly above 50%. You could see, based on how the trajectory was going, you could even think about, does he get to the point where he's announcing in March, April with 55, 56% approval rating? which in these polarized times would be significant. This ongoing controversy around classified documents, um, which, you know, the more I read reporting, I haven't read anything that has indicated that, to me, uh, that national security was at risk or, or anything like that. I do think, in comparison to where I was last week, uh, I feel much more confident saying uh, that they they mishandled uh, how they handled from a communications perspective and sort of telling the public and all, all of this that that was mishandled. I would definitely and, agree with that. And so they're going to have to deal with the ramifications of that. My... My guess would be is they don't – President Biden is not announcing that he's running for reelect until they feel like they've put this behind them. And so that may look like 60 Minutes interview. That may look like Biden at one point having to do, you know, a 90-minute press conference where he just gets grilled for 90 minutes, but he's open and, and is, is – uh, Sort of, sort of goes through the gauntlet of, of answering questions, and they feel like okay, all the questions have been answered. But you can't run, you can't announce a re-election campaign with with a, with a cloud of questions over. And so now, you know, there were rumors that he might announce early, given how good people were feeling. I think now they they need to a let this play out, see where the special counsel is going. Uh, and then they're they're gonna need to feel like they've answered the questions, and they clearly haven't done haven't done that yet. Yeah, and so speaking of this particular situ situation, is a perfect segue into um, the next question, which why would anyone take documents home? 
Yeah, so I'm kind of like cautious about answering this. Um, I am be, too. But, but, and and the, the reason I'm cautious is because, and we, we said this last week, you know, I don't think, when, when folks hear classified documents, I think the average person is thinking like nuclear codes. Yes. The um, nature of the documents for me in answering this question deeply matters. Of course. Of course. And like, this isn't new. Remember, uh, was a Sandy Berger, um, right? Sandy Berger, Clinton's national security advisor, uh, I believe he was indicted following the Clinton administration because of issues related to classified material and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so, so, so this is this is something that that comes up. You know, I, I could, off the top of my head, think of some some categories, potentially. But again, like, take this all with a grain of salt because I, I I hate like the the circumspection of this but just to answer the question you know a lot of it is um like um like personal connection almost Mm -hmm. like memento like it's all that's that's i was involved in this in this work there's a document yeah like you view it as a keepsake right even though it has a classification on it which you know but I think second is um, it's not like you um, I have the sense that a lot of this is classified material uh, classified documents that are um, Mixed in with a whole bunch of unclassified material, yeah. so that can a lot of people just too. end up. You know, say you're working on a particular, you know, you have you have a policy item in your portfolio, or you have a communications item in your portfolio. Obviously, we're talking about this in the context of the president, but I mean, just speaking generally for like staff issues, um, you know, you you may have a a binder that you know or a folder that says you know this policy labor policy whatever immigration policy small business whatever and um there might be a classified document related to that subject matter but you're you're putting it in because it's it's uh, material related to uh an issue that you worked on now there are all kinds of record keeping so so like for instance for for me when i left the white house you have to like go through white house counsel and and there there is a process for accounting for official materials and that kind of thing obviously it's not a perfect process um but but yeah so i guess the first two categories would be uh, a like a keepsake or like a reminder or um, you know this could be relevant to future work you know I, I want to remember that argument I made or I want to remember that point whatever and then two is like it gets like mixed in like just yep. a like almost an administrative error but then like right I think and this is what this is where it gets tricky like uh, 
you could imagine <laughs> you could imagine scenarios where people where folks and again i'm not speaking about the president i'm not speaking about trump i'm not speaking about uh biden i'm just speaking generally you can imagine scenarios where folks are taking classified material um because um it it reflects poorly on them mm-hmm. or it has some kind of um uh, some kind of uh value you know beyond mm-hmm. the work yep and that's why there are laws around this thing and that's why <laughs> that's why uh you know you want to be really careful about keepsakes <laughs> that kind of thing because mm-hmm. because uh uh, uh DOJ attorney uh, uh, might not may not know the may not know the difference between mm-hmm. what's a keepsake and yep. what is sort of collateral. Um, so yeah, so it's a good question. Um, there's a lot more that I'd say, uh, sort of banter, uh, but but it is it is an area that's just you know covered with administrative procedure, bureaucratic procedure, and the law. In ways that, frankly, like I'm not totally, um, totally sort of. Uh, I wouldn't want to speak with like the utmost, uh, you know, definitiveness. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll end my, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up my answer there. <laughs> uh, the next question: What are the main things about President Obama that cons- uh, Christian conservatives can appreciate, both in terms of personality and politics? Michael, what say you? I mean, you know, Melissa, I have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> so many thoughts. Look, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, I, I think conservatives already are starting to pine for Barack Obama. I think they're already starting to realize um that he um, was willing to um, that that he was able to he didn't take every advantage that he could in arguments that he actually did have an impulse toward trying to keep the country together that you know when he announces his support for gay marriage he says very categorically that those who disagree with his new position on the issue you know have a have a place in public life and and should be allowed to express their views and may have something to offer even to those who disagree that impulse that he had is not a dominant one uh among many democrats today one of the reasons why it's not dominant among many democrats today is that many democrats saw that that was barack obama's approach and saw that he didn't get anything for it or he didn't get as much for it as would would in their minds justify that approach and so so yeah i think he had i think he had a a real desire to um 
bring in as many different arguments from different sources to have as broad a coalition as he could. He was willing to do things like have Rick Warren at the inauguration and and tell his left wing basically to deal with it. Um, and I think it was a major missed opportunity. I think there were several missed opportunities that conservatives had to not, okay, let's say that you think it's all a political move, that when Barack Obama says that he wants to reduce the number of abortions, that that's just like a triangulation, that that's some kind of like, um, uh, uh, that's just some kind of play. Okay, call his bluff. Call his bluff. But instead of calling his bluff and saying, okay, you said that you'd support some abortion restrictions, we're calling on you to put forward a bill of abortion restrictions that you think would be acceptable and then uh, and then let Congress debate those. Instead, they just said, oh, he's lying. He doesn't really mean that. Uh, you, you can't trust him. And it just, it just, it was a, it was actually like a sacrificing of leverage that conservatives had time and time again, um, uh, that um, that actually contributed to polarization. Now I will say this, Melissa, the the thing that got under conservative skin, and I do think, I do think it, you know, this contributes not. Not uh, intentionally, but it does contribute to someone like Donald Trump. Is that one of Barack Obama and his sort of campaign teams, one of their strategies and one of the ways that they'd approach debates would be to position Barack Obama's position as the reasonable position and thereby suggesting those who don't agree with him are unreasonable. And this turns out to be really politically effective. The, the problem with that is um, that unless you find ways to relieve the pressure that builds on the other side, then the pressure keeps on building to the point where, especially if they keep losing on the basis of those kinds of arguments, then the other side just starts to say, look, we can't win this, this debate over who's, who's like we, we don't, we don't want to play on those terms. Plus who, 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 who are they to say what's reasonable or not? That itself is a way of restricting sort of the, 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 the discourse, and then you end up with a, uh, with a presidential candidate and also some congressional leaders who pride themselves on being unreasonable. So it was almost, there's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy to, to, to positioning yourself as the reasonable one um, that I, I, I think... Um, I, 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 I've spent a lot of time thinking about the ramifications of that. Um, not that I think 
um, you know, that like people are responsible for their own actions. But but I do I do think about were there things that could have been done to let some of the air out, um, to let some of the pressure out. So so yeah, hope that hope that answers the answers the question. But yeah, I just, I think conservatives just missed the boat on Barack Obama. And the last thing I'll say here, Melissa, is one reason you could you could see that that is the case is that you have a lot of conservatives in 2023 who are sounding a lot like Barack Obama <laughs> yeah. in 2008. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's just that, that, that is something that's always shocking to me. Not the fact that it's happening, but the fact that there's so little, um, they'll say Barack Obama things but never recant or revisit the fact that they were so opposed to Barack Obama when he was saying the same things that they're not saying. Uh, And so uh, I think that's like one clear sign that conservatives, uh, what exactly was the question? Uh, What can conservatives... Uh, Appreciate about... Yeah, uh, Well, well, yeah, so they can appreciate... The things that are coming out of their own mouth now that came out of Barack Obama's 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> um, and then one of our last questions on the serious side, which is very interesting, are what questions are you and I, Michael and I, asking each other that we wish listeners would ask us? It's such an interesting question. I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I mean, my general thought... I feel like listeners are doing a great job. We love your questions. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do love the questions that come in. I mean, a lot of the questions that Melissa and I ask ourselves are, are the questions that we feel comfortable asking ourselves <laughs> in the context of, of you know, a marriage and a our trusting co- relationship. and <laughs> The cone of silence. That's right. <laughs> And so, uh, and so, uh, and then often what'll, you know, often our, our episode topics are expressions of the working out of the questions that a couple months earlier we were only comfortable asking ourselves. Um, I think the student loan debt episode, which is probably our most popular episode, it is our most popular episode. Um, is very much that, which is we would have all these long conversations. Mm-hmm. I'd ask you um, questions and we'd, we'd talk it out. Um, but we didn't want to, because if, if the, the, the debate was so complex and, and remains so for me, um, I was glad we weren't put in a position where we were, where I was forced to answer a question on student loan debt before we had had the conversations that helped me yeah. come to a sort of the the position I had. So I don't know if you have have you when you saw this question, did anything come to mind? 
You can ask me more foreign policy questions, and you can watch me get giddy and flourish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, <laughs> more foreign policy questions. That's from right. Melissa. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. But yes, <laughs> we are. We're, we're very interested in hearing from you more often. Send us an email, comment on Substack. You know, get get at us on Twitter. Because if there is something where you feel like I'm constantly talking about this with my partner, with my child, with yes. my small group, 100%. and we're constantly debating this out, but you would like to hear us debate it out, we would love to do that and actually do a longer episode because most likely Michael and I are probably discussing it in private a lot. A lot. Um, so those are our serious questions. And now on to the fun questions. Uh, I mean, I had fun with the serious I, questions. Okay, yes. Let's be clear. Always have fun with the serious yeah. questions. Maybe great, I'll be serious with the fun questions. A great but, yeah, time was had go. by all. Um, how did we decide on our kids' names? Well... Sirsha's name. So we have, uh, as in case you're a brand new listener, we have um, two children, Sirsha and Ilaria. Um, they're four and 21 months old. With Sirsha, um, I was working at the British Embassy starting in 2013, and within just the first, just what three weeks of working there, I got emails from coworkers, you know, located in either Ireland or the UK, named named Sirsha, and. I would see the name and think, how do I pronounce that? And, you know, I figured it out quite quickly, and I figured out a lot of Gaelic names quite quite quickly, like Neve and um, Ailey and, and all, all sorts of beautiful names. And I went home to Michael, and I was like, you know, there's this actress, Saoirse Ronan, so, you know, there's somebody out there famous who has this name. So, and this is a very, this is a classic historical Irish name. It comes from the 1920s. Um, there's actually a, a political periodical that is still written today called Saoirse because it means freedom in Gaelic. Um, so it has political origins from the 1920s. And I'm Irish. And so one of the things that we were looking at, like, you know, for the criteria for naming our children, we wanted something very unique for our children, something that no one else would name their kids, but we didn't want the name to just come out of nowhere or come out of left field. We wanted it to have some kind of history, some purpose in our heritage. And so Saoirse was just like the perfect name. And then with Ilaria, the story there is that in 2019, um, we took a trip to Italy because we took my parents abroad for the very first time ever. They'd never been outside the United States except for Canada. And we so we took them to Italy and Germany um, around Christmas time to take them to the German Christmas markets and then down to Italy because Michael and I love Italy. We really wanted to show them that country. And we were in Turin. Um, Turin's a beautiful city in um, the north of uh, the Piedmont region. And Michael toured a museum with Sirisho while myself and my parents, we, we um, sat on a piazza at a, at, um, at a cafe and had lunch and it was delicious. So Michael comes out hungry with Sirisho. And so just a block away, we stop at this little um, fish sandwich spot, which was um, a quick and easy meal for him where he could just go in and have, and I think you got what, a soft crab sandwich and it was delicious. Um, but the the worker who was there who greeted you and said, hi, my name is Alaria. How can I help you? And Michael. Had, I'll never forget it. And Michael had her repeat the name so that he could he could basically he came outside to me. I was standing outside with my parents in Saoirse and he said, Melissa, I've got the name of our second daughter. If we were ever to have another girl. Uh, and I asked what it was. He said, it's Alaria. 
And immediately, I completely agreed with him, said, yep, that will be the name if of our second girl if we ever um, have, have one. Um, so Ilaria is Italian. Michael's very Italian. It means joyful, hilarious. Cheerful. Because, cheerful yeah, yeah, yeah. because, it you know, Ilaria comes from the word um, hilarious. Uh, and Ilaria is, in fact, a cheerful, joyful child. Yes. Yes, she is. Yeah, I love our babies' names. And, of course, we have dozens of nicknames for each of them. <laughs> I mean, and, dozens uh, upon dozens upon I mean, dozens, dozens of nicknames for our dozens children. Dozens and dozens, yeah. So what are, th- what are our top three meals that we've cooked recently, especially if they've been easy but good? Yeah. So, look, I have some tricks to... Um, I just feel better when I'm able to put something on the table that that um, that had work a lot of work going to it or a lot of time going to it. Of course, during the weekdays in particular, that's really challenging because you don't have don't have a lot of like time to give. So I have some tricks. One, which I wrote about on the Substack last year at some point, is roasting a chicken, which actually doesn't take as long as, as folks say. If you if you get home at, from work at 5, uh, take the chicken, which has been marinating in buttermilk or however you do it, put it in the oven, It'll be ready in 75 minutes, 90 minutes, and you have dinner on the table at 6.30. Um, But roasting a chicken, then using the bones to make broth, and then using the broth to maybe make a a long-cooked sauce over the weekend when you have more time, I just, that makes me feel really satisfied as a provider and as the cook to like have that build throughout the week. And for really like, you know, three or four meals to come from something that took, a, you know, significant, like roasting a chicken, it's an hour and a half in the oven, marinated the night before, it's been marinating for 24 hours, you know, you feel like, okay, there, there's been a, a lot of good good stuff here. And then the way the time compounds, so all the time you spent roast, roasting the chicken, goes into making the broth and then all the time making the broth and making the chicken goes into the sauce. So, so that's one trick. Um, the other thing I'd say, so we, we make roast, I'll, I'll roast the chicken at least like once a month. The other thing I'd say is, um, uh, you know, roasts. I will say the one thing one thing that I've relented on that I used to be really <laughs> that I used to be really picky on. Now, if I could make the roast in a safe way during the day in our Dutch um, in our in our Dutch oven, I'll, mm-hmm. I'd prefer to do that. But um, I've I've become open to the slow cooker to the, the, uh, the to the pot. crock pot, um, and you know. Sometimes that's just what you got to do, and and it's it's good. Um, there is a so here's something I made in the last few weeks. 
uh, New York Times has Momofuku's uh, Momofuku's um, Bosam recipe. Yeah, all oh, the Bosam is so good. And it's like in the so the great thing about this is again my thing is like maximum time but but minimal prep, prep especially during the week because you got things to do um but that time i think contributes to the to the love and attention that's in the in the meal even if you're not having to tend to it all the time so the bosom it's like in the oven for like five hours at like 225 degrees you, you, you just have to like baste it a couple times. You tear up the meat. You serve it with lettuce. You could use day-old rice or two-day-old rice that you cooked before. And you have like one of the best weeknight meals or weekend meals that you could possibly have. It's just so delicious. And so that would be a good one. Mississippi Mel- roast is another one that you do Mississippi often. roast. Uh, In the crock pot specifically. Yeah, no, yeah, Mississippi roast is good. You know, learned a trick from, I mean, I don't know if you call it, um, but our friend Tyler Wick Stevenson Mm -hmm. makes Mississippi roast. Uh, We actually had it for Easter. uh, This past year. This past year. And uh, Tyler is a pastor. He had to preach in the morning. He he couldn't be cooking all day. Uh, um, And instead of cooking down the whole roast he he diced up the the meat into like fairly fairly like probably inch chunks and it was it was delicious it obviously took less time for you know the cartilage to to break down and it it worked super well so i think look it's um it's not about placing the burden on yourself for things for either time or ingredients for any kind of resource that you don't have i find though that if you just if you're willing if if you put some thought into how to use the resources that you do have um it makes uh feeding your family into less of a burden and more of a joy and more of a contribution. Um, and so those are some meals that, that do it. Mm-hmm. The Bosom, Mississippi roast, uh, roast chicken. chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, so I don't like cooking everybody and Michael is our cook and he's really talented at it. And so I'm very happy for him to, to be the one to do that for our family. But um, for the month of January, I told Michael, because he's finishing up his book manuscript, that I would be the one to think about um, dinner for the entire month of January. And so just a couple of days ago, um, I saw that Michael had gotten some ground beef out of the freezer, and I thought, I don't know what he's going to do with this, because he's not the one cooking. So I quickly went on New York Times Recipes, and I found something called Quick Bolognese, and it was... I used jarred garlic, so it was garlic and onion saute it, and then you put the meat in, and then some tomato paste in, and then you put Worcestershire sauce in, and you cook that down for like a 20-minute period and put it with some pasta of your choice, and the Worcestershire sauce, it, Worcestershire, I didn't had no idea, but it's made up of four different ingredients. Can I tell you those ingredients right now? I absolutely cannot, but it's made <laughs> up of four different ingredients, and so it's like it's a like a it's a trick to get your sauce to have a deeper flavor 
than the amount of ingredients that you're putting in and the amount of time that you're putting in. And so for me, as someone who is not a cook, I thought that that sauce was really good the other day. It was day. delicious. I was proud of you. Yeah, yeah it was, thank it was you. Really good. I was proud of me too. I was. I thought this actually tastes really good, and it, it the depth of flavor was there, and it's because of the Worcestershire sauce. So go search for quick. Quick bolognese on New York Times cooking, and you'll find this recipe, and I can definitely recommend. Yeah. All right, so a couple more questions. Who are our favorite 20th century presidents? All right. My answer is very quick. Like, uh, it was yeah, yeah, immediate yeah. when I saw this. When I saw this question, my my favorite 20th century president was definitely FDR, Franklin okay. Delano Roosevelt. Um, I, I mean, the guy had to weather the Great Depression, the worst depression, you know, during that century. Uh, the New Deal, I think, is an absolutely brilliant uh, group of policy. And, I mean, he created Social Security, Public Works. Um, I think he was an upstanding guy. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is definitely my top. And if I were to come up with a sort of second place, or at least on the Republican side, it would be Eisenhower. I also really appreciated Eisenhower um, with uh, his military background during and how he led during World War II, um, and then during his presidency, how he handled the Cold War, um, especially coming off of Truman, um, and how he supported the burgeoning European Union and Europe. Um, you know, Truman, you know, he created the Marshall Plan, and so Truman is responsible for the rebuilding of the entirety of Europe, but Truman also um, allowed two atomic bombs to drop, the, fir- the world's first atomic bomb. So, like, I can't put Truman up there because that just disqualifies him for me. But he did save Europe. So that's another one that I think of, but he's disqualified for me because of nuclear weapons. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so FDR and Eisenhower, I would say, are, are my two favorites of the 20th century. Yeah, I, I'd throw JFK into the mix. Okay. Mostly my grandfather. Uh, mm. uh, there, there, there's, uh, there's uh, you know, so, some sentimentality that, that goes into that. But, yeah, no, I think, I think FDR uh, is, is, uh, is definitely a, a strong, uh, a strong uh, candidate, uh, candidate there. Um, yeah. Okay. So this is similar to a question that we had last time, but um, it specifically looks at the level. So let me just get to the question, actually. If you were to serve in, on an elected body, would it be local, state, hey, or I'm federal, sorry. and why? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, what's up? Teddy. You're a Teddy fan? I played a deranged man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who thought that he was Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Uh, in Arsenic and Old Lace. That's right. And so... You know, fondness for Teddy. And then, you know, uh, uh, his his, uh, sort of economic populism, uh, I think, had had merit uh, at the turn of of the century. Uh, National parks are great. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to talk about. 20th century, you already named FDR, Eisenhower, which I agree with. Yeah, I'll throw in Teddy. Throw Teddy into the mix. Okay, cool. Um, so our next question is, 
if you were to serve on an elected body, would it be local, state, or federal, and why? It's similar to a question we had last round, but it's more talking about at which level would we want to work at. Yeah, federal, just because that's where all my experience has been. Yeah, it, it could be nothing else for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is I don't have really intentions to run for anything. And whether it's federal, state, local, whatever, like, I, I'd... Uh, I'd have to be like drafted into it, you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, like yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, you'd have to push, pull me local, state, or federal kicking and screaming. I do think previous episode you said school, school board. board. Yeah, no, no, I would totally, if, if, to answer this question, absolutely local, put me on Parks and Rec, put me in the clerk's office. Oh. <laughs> you know, push some papers around and, you know, make some things happen. <laughs> for the people. For the people. Pushing papers for the people. That's my campaign slogan. That, that could pushing be a, papers pushing papers for, for the, the people. people. <laughs> um, yeah, elect me. Vote for summer. Um, our final question. That's a Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> joke. And I just realized how millennial it is. Very in me. millennial. And random. Okay, yeah. sorry, folks. Anyways, our last question, and we love this question. What is our favorite musical that we've attended together? So that's a tough one. <laughs> it sure is. Um, so I have two answers. Okay, hopefully, I have like five. Hopefully I don't... Oh, wait. Okay, my other two answers don't count anymore because I just thought of the answer that you know is going to be my answer. I know. Carousel. Yeah, duh. I carousel. Mean, I, okay. Carousel, carousel, say, carousel. Carousel always and forever saw, on Broadway. We saw the Carousel revival with Joshua Henry, the great Joshua Henry, uh, Lindsay Mendez, right? Yes. Uh, who won uh, the Tony for it, yes. Who won the Tony for it. Uh, Jessica. Oh. It was a great cast. Yeah, she was the other lead. In yeah, she was the other lead. Um, I love the the 1993. I think 19, I think it was 93. I've listened to that version so often. I love the the, uh, the the version with uh, uh, the production with Audra McDonald, uh, and I think is Kelly O'Hare in that. Too? Yes. Uh, look, Thank I you. think Carousel. Here's the thing. I think Carousel has the most perfect opening 25, 30 minutes to a musical that exists. Like I, I literally, I don't think you can top it. From the overture through like um, Mr. Snow. No, I'm like through If I Loved You. It, the opening 30 minutes, really the whole first act of that show is just perfect. It gets a little weird in the second act. It really does, as, I, and, as all musicals and, do. And I don't, I'm not like, uh, I could do without like June is busting out all over. I love that one. No, Come on. But that, the opening, the opening 30 minutes of that show, just sublime. Just sublime. You wept that entire oh, first act. Yeah. It, it, the score is just so beautiful. And the the music's incredible. I just love it. I just love it. It's one of those shows where if like the community college or like the high school or like whatever was doing a uh, like a production of Carousel, like I go see it 
just because I'd love I'd love to hear any orchestra uh, play that score. So yeah, that's that's definitely my answer. <laughs> Yeah, so my my favorite musical is Sunday in the Park with George. Yes. And we have seen a production of it, and it was very good, but I'll still prefer the Medita- the Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters recording over, like, what we saw, even though it was a very good production. It was a great production. It was a great... A D- it was, I think it was in Signature DC. Theater. Yeah, Signature Theater in yeah. D.C. is where we saw it. Um, so I'm... On this, que- on this question, I'm stuck between saying I love seeing Follies with you at the Kennedy Center... Um, in the presidential box while I sit next to Colin Powell because <laughs> it had Bernadette Peters and Follies is just a very good musical and just seeing Bernadette Peters live was so good. But then I also, I, I you're going to be surprised by this answer. I don't think so. Because I loved An American in Paris. I knew it. I knew you were going to say it. I think that An American in Paris is just a great musical and we got to see it while a uh, two of the three major leads that you know for the Tony Award-winning production, two of the three major leads were still there, and it was just a great time. I loved it's an a American great Paris show. With you. Speaking of great scores, it's hard yeah. to top that. Yeah, and you love dancing. Yes, and so and I love ballet, and so the yeah. the lead um, uh, female role is usually by a real dancer and. Uh, I love ballet. Ballet is one of my favorite things. And so it was a ballerina in the role, and I just loved it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good answer, Melissa. Uh, You know, the thing is, some of our... So I thought maybe you were going to say, and one of my top answers was going to be that signature theater production of Sunday in the Park with George, because I just thought it was great. It was very good, but I just... Mandy Patinkin can never be topped, like, ever. I've had some great theater experiences, as I know you have... We, we, we've experienced so much together. This is actually a category. This question was so interesting because it was like a weird category in which we've had these separate experiences. Mm-hmm. Like I saw Moulin Rouge yes. about a year and a half ago and I loved it. And yes. it, had, it had the original, it had Aaron Tveit in the role who he run the Tony for that role and he was spectacular live. And I saw a touring production of Light in the Piazza at Kennedy Center with, I think, Elena Shadow. I'm almost certain. Yeah, it was Elena Shadow because you were obsessed with her for a while. I mean, that that show is beautiful. Um, and then I saw, it was in previews, but I saw the Broadway revival, not the current one, uh, uh, with of Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. with Patti Lapone. I mean, Patty Lapone, come on. Michael Traveris, uh, I think I think that's how you, how you say his name. Um, uh, but that show was fantastic as we well. We could have an entire podcast on. We musicals. could do an entire musical musical uh, show. Uh, I think we'd have uh, attrition among some of our certainly. Like and then we'd get like weird pickup from yes. <laughs> from like uh, like like show choir kids uh, yes. for an episode. Uh, all right, but I think before we risk uh, a complete audience turnover due to musical talk, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks again for your great questions. We're so grateful for our listeners. This is a great way for us to respond to what's on your mind and we love doing that we're uh, gonna take a couple days off from morning five this week yes. just due to travel but i believe we'll pick morning five back up on wednesday and then we'll be with you 
with a new episode that we're really excited about. We'll have a couple of guests. couple of guests uh, next week uh, on Where We Are. Until then, this has been Where We Are. Go Bills. Go Bills. Bills Mafia, baby. Let's do it. <laughs> this has been Where We Are. Bye. Of the week.